If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 1 here in just a second. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 is where we'll be. What were, if you had to pick, the, most, the 50 most important days in history? Now, I don't mean that in the sense like pick a day here and a pick a day there from all throughout the history of humanity. What I really mean is the, a 50-day span. If, if you had to, to pick a time period of just 50 days, what would you say would be the most important 50 days in all of human history? Now, to give you a little bit of context of, of where we are and how long that is, if you think backwards on the calendar, uh, that would be like to Easter weekend to now would be 50 days. If you think forward in the calendar, think just after Father's Day would be 50 days from now. So 50 days in history. What are the most important 50 days? Uh, there are a number of candidates, I guess, that could, uh, could buy for this crown, 50 days doesn't seem like very long, but a lot can happen in 50 days. On July 15th, 1945, there had never been a successful test of an atomic bomb in all of the world. And American generals estimated that the invasion of Japan, codenamed Operation Downfall, would result in approximately 1 million U.S. casualties. 50 days later, on September 3rd, 1945, that was the first morning that the war was officially over. So what happened in between in those 50 days? Well, on July 16th, the first successful A-bomb test was performed. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bombed on August 6th and 9th. On August 15th, Japan's emperor announced his country's surrender. And on September 2nd, the formal surrender agreement was signed aboard the U.S. battleship Missouri which was anchored in Tokyo Bay. All of that happened in the 50 days between July 15th and September 3rd. A lot can happen in 50 days, and those are pretty important days for the history of this country and no doubt for the history of this world. But as important as those 50 days were, they aren't the most important. Uh, we're here in a church building. No doubt you've probably thought about spiritual things and, and think, okay, when are some 50 days that I can think about in the Bible? And you're on the right track. Uh, if we think about in the Old Testament, for example, if you want to think about the morning of the Passover, that day there in Egypt, we think on that day the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and these plagues were taking place all around them, and there was all of this uncertainty and so forth. And then if you think 50 days in the future, they are out at the, the summit or at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the law from God uh, there in his presence. And so 50 days, a lot happened in those 50 days from being slaves in Egypt to now they're in this covenant relationship with Yahweh, uh, the God of heaven and earth. But as important as that is in the Bible... I think those 50 days are just a shadow of the most important 50 days. What was the most important 50-day span in all of history? Well, look there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. You know what Pentecost means? It means 50th. Because it was 50 days after the Passover Sabbath. 
It is the seventh Sunday after Jesus' Resurrection Sunday, which many today call Easter. And as I hinted at earlier, that Sunday is today. And if we rewind 50 days from Acts chapter 2 in the biblical text, where do we find ourselves? Well, we find ourselves with Jesus crucified and his disciples scared and scattered. And so what I invite you to do this morning is to go back with me. And, and I think you will see why I believe that these 50 days are the most important days in history. From Passover to Pentecost are the most important 50 days that mankind has experienced at any point in history. Uh, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 22 to look at that. Luke chapter 22. Thank you for being here this morning to those who are visiting. We've got a lot of visitors this morning. Maybe you're in town for a graduation or to see friends, or maybe you're visiting with family. Maybe you've just uh, come here and you've decided to visit with us this morning. We're grateful for your presence. And I hope the things that we talk about will be helpful to you as you strive to grow closer to Jesus. Uh, on that Passover, on, in Luke chapter 22, we've come to the moment that all the rest of the Bible has been building up to. We often think about, or at least I do, how wonderful it might have been to be with Jesus in the upper room, uh, to be with him on the way to the Mount of Olives uh, I generally think about myself as a faithful disciple, and here Jesse says, no, I'm Pilate this morning with those things. That was, that was helpful, uh, though convicting. And John talks about all of the things that Jesus said, or many of the things that he said. He said more than even what we find there. We, we learn about the things that he did. How neat would it have been for, to be there as he washes feet, as he prays on your behalf as a disciple, even to be there in the garden, though things take a negative turn very quickly. And as we think about that, there really are a lot of negative things around this Passover, swirling around with Jesus. When we consider the disciples especially over the, over the course of these 50 days, when we think back at them before these 50 days began, at the beginning of these 50 days, what were these disciples characterized by? They were characterized by a few things I think we see very clearly in the biblical text. They were characterized, first of all, by selfishness, and division. If you're there in Luke chapter 22, notice with me beginning in verse 24. Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper, right? So they've, they've eaten the Passover meal. He says, you know, this is my body and this is my blood. This is really serious and powerful stuff as we're thinking about what's going to happen. And where are the disciples' minds? Now there also arose a dispute among them. They're arguing over what? as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not who the one who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves. And so they're bickering, they're divided, they're selfish, they're prideful, and Jesus rebukes them. And in John's account, we learn that he washed their feet at this point. And Jesus says he is the one who serves, and he serves as an example, but that service is contrasted with all of their selfishness and all of their division. 
We also see that the disciples are characterized by deceit and greed. If you turn over to Matthew's gospel for just a moment, Matthew chapter 26. Will you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 26. Notice in verse 14... This is just before the Passover. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? They counted out to him thirty pieces of silver, so from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. You know, lots of people have, have had suggestions about what it was that motivated Judas to do what he did in betraying Jesus. I, again, I think Jesse's right in saying... Jesus was Judas's friend. Uh, he had been with him. He had worked miracles, if you think about that. He'd preached the good news of the kingdom. And so people want to give these grand ideas of why he was motivated to do this. But I think the text is pretty clear. You know why he was motivated to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. It was because he was greedy. In fact, John's gospel in John chapter 12 and verse 6 says that that Judas was a thief and he was the one who had the money box and he used to take money from it when people put stuff in there. Nobody noticed that or knew, but but now it was 30 pieces of silver and he decides to betray Jesus from for that. And, and from this point forward, everything that he does is deceitful. And we remember that Jesus calls him out and when he asks, is it I that's going to betray you? Jesus says, it's as you said. And then he tells him, After the Lord's Supper, after he washes their feet, he says, what you do, do quickly. And he goes and betrays him. Pretending to love Jesus, even in the kiss that he gives him in the garden. And so deceit and greed characterizes these disciples. It's not just that. If you're still there in Matthew chapter 26, we also see that there is cowardice. There is denial on their part. If you look there in verse 56, this is after the mob comes. Matthew 26 and 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Peter, of course, especially comes to mind. We remember the pride and overconfidence that Peter had. If you think back there to verse 33, Peter answered and said to him after Jesus said, All of you are going to betray me. Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But it wasn't just Peter. And so said all the disciples. Well, what did Peter actually do? If we drop down to verse 69, after they all fled in verse 56... Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Now notice how Matthew characterizes this woman. She is a servant and she is a young girl. This is somebody who is the lowest level of all of society. If you're not willing to confess Jesus before her, you're not willing to confess Jesus before anybody. But he denied it, verse 70, before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. I'm reminded of the promises of Jesus, especially as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that we're not going to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. Peter's not being tempted too much here. He's just falling prey to that temptation. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, 
This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little while later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter and others, they were so confident, right? They were so ready. We're not going to deny you even if everybody else does. We won't do it. And, and you have to give Peter some credit. He did show up. He was ready, but it had to be on his terms. I mean, it says something about the guy that he draws one of the two swords that they have. He draws one of them, and he's going to start attacking this mob. When if we look at the text, it's likely that there's maybe a hundred soldiers, members of this crowd who are there, and Peter's like, let's go. Let's fight. But he is not willing to die. He is not willing to surrender as Jesus did. And of course, that's harder than fighting. And when push came to shove, they all ran away. And Peter explicitly denied him. In some ways, the worst thing, there are other things that we could point out, of course, but I think in some ways the worst thing is the confusion and misunderstanding that we see with these disciples uh, I, you can feel Jesus' frustration through the text, I think. Uh, they're arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom and you know what kind of kingdom is this going to be. They didn't understand, even though it seems like they would have understood or should have understood by now. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, there in verses 35 through 38, just after what we read, Jesus is talking about what they need to be doing in the future, and he's talking about swords, but I think he's talking about it in a spiritual sense. And they take him literally, right? Jesus is talking about, you need to be prepared for some things, and they say, swords, yeah, we've got two swords here, Jesus. You can almost imagine it. And Jesus, what does he say? It is enough. I think what he's saying there is, is maybe what a lot of parents say, right? That's enough. You're not going to get it. I'm done. I'm done talking about this with you. Let's talk about something else. He's frustrated with them because of their confusion. You're not going to get it. We see this confusion. I think in some ways John gives us the most information of what Jesus said. It also gives us the most information on how confused they were on the things Jesus said to them. If you turn over to John chapter 13, John chapter 13 As Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, ah, we pick on Peter a little bit here. I don't feel too bad because I see so much of myself in Peter. Uh, remember, he's washing their feet. And what does Peter say in verse 8 of John chapter 13? Uh, actually, verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? What are you doing? Stand up. Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you should wash my feet. I don't care what you say, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part of me. Simon Peter said to him, now remember, two seconds ago he said, you're never going to wash my feet. Then he says, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean 
And you are clean, but not all of you. Peter, you're just not getting it. You're just not understanding one thing after another. Uh, Dropping down to verse 21, he says, One of you is going to betray me, and it's clear that it's Judas, the one in whom I I dipped the bread in the dish, right? Remember? But they didn't get that. They didn't see that it was Judas who was the one who was going to betray him. We drop down to verse 21. Uh, Read with me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples were looked around at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, probably John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him of whom he spoke. He spoke. And leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. I mean, how more obvious can you get, right? But they didn't see it. They didn't know it. We drop down to verse uh, chapter 14 and verse 2. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas asks, well, where are you going, Lord? And we don't know the way. Uh, If we drop down to uh, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how do you say to me, show us the father? Can you hear Jesus' frustration with their confusion and misunderstanding? You still don't get it. I've been here three years. You've been with me as I've gone around teaching all these people all these things. You've gotten teaching nobody else has gotten, and you still don't get it. These are the disciples, and this is not great. And really, honestly, I just picked like four things out of all of the things we could have talked about that were going wrong at the beginning of these 50 days. But then we get to Acts chapter 2. And everything's changed. Turn back over there to Acts chapter 2. All of the confusion and pride and bickering and greed and misunderstanding, all of that stuff seems to have evaporated over the course of these 50 days. In its place, we find just the opposite of these things. And so instead of the last thing we talked about, confusion and misunderstanding, what do we find in Acts chapter 2? There is clarity in their understanding. There is conviction in the things that they are saying. Uh, Notice just a few verses with me in verse uh, 14. After the Holy Spirit has fallen on them, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, it's nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes into the prophecy and he says, This is what Joel was talking about. I see it. I understand it. We drop down to verse 22 in the sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. 
Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He understands who Jesus is. He understands what's going on. And we see that all of the disciples are preaching in this same way. He reveals his understanding. He reveals his conviction. Instead of cowardice and denial, that's now changed to courage and confession. Peter is the one who confesses him before all in verse 36 of this same sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it doesn't stop there. If we, if we go over to Acts chapter 4, and if we were to read through that account, we see that he continues to confess. And, and he continues to confess even though he's beaten. He continues to confess even though he's told by the Sanhedrin not to. He continues to confess before the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of these people in power and authority. It's not a servant girl anymore that he's denying in front of. He's confessing in front of the very people who killed Jesus in front of the very people who had the most power in Judaism. And so courage and confession have replaced all of the cowardice and denial. And if we look there in Acts chapter 2 as well, instead of selfishness and division, what do we see among these followers of Jesus? There is unity. There is oneness. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And instead of deceit and greed, there is now openness. There is giving to one another. If we look there uh, in verses 45 and 46, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord, that's unity, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Wow, that's different, isn't it? So the question is, what changed? What changed? What happened in these 50 days? Well, you know. You know the answer to that, don't you? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. He made the perfect sacrifice for sins and defeated death and the grave. And this isn't just some secret thing that happened. Jesus appeared. He appeared to many Yes, to prove his resurrection, but I would say that he appeared to many for some very specific purposes as well. At the end of the book of John, he appeared to Thomas to drive out all doubt. And he says, here, put your hands here in my wounds. You see that I'm here and I'm standing before you. He appears before Peter uh, at the end of John in chapter 21 to restore the fallen. And just as Peter had denied him three times, now he confesses him three times. And Jesus asks that question, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. We see that Jesus appeared to open their understanding. At the end of Luke chapter 24, that's what we see, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Later at the end of that chapter, he explained from the Scriptures all of these things concerning himself, and it says their understanding was opened. Can you imagine what it was like for these disciples to get, they ended up getting 40 more days with Jesus before he ascended? Have you ever... 
I think about my granddad, how many times I've wanted to call him up and ask him something, and, and I would have such a long list. If I had just a little bit more time to ask him things, to learn from him, how much more with Jesus? And Jesus appeared to them so that he might open their understanding in just that way. And then at the end of Mark and the end of Matthew, he appeared to them to send them out so that they might make more disciples as well. And in these 50 days, on the 40th day, Jesus ascended. And from his place at the right hand of God, he sent the Holy Spirit to be, to be the revealer of all truth. And he is our mediator with God the Father as he sits at the right hand of God. And then at the end of those 50 days on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to reveal God's completed will and to proclaim the day of salvation. The difference in these 50 days was Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, His appearances, His ascension, and the day of salvation that was manifested in the coming of the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. Now, Jesse and I didn't talk beforehand uh, on what we were doing this morning, but I'm going to ask you to do a similar thing. That's easy to just say, okay, that happened with them back then, that happened with them as disciples. Are things really much different with us today? Do you struggle with any of these things? Do you ever struggle with selfishness or division? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'll just raise mine. Do you ever, do you ever struggle with deceit? Do you ever just struggle with greed, with covetousness? Do you ever struggle with cowardice? Uh, maybe even to the point of denying Jesus, or at the very least not speaking up to say that you know Him and that you serve Him. Do you ever struggle with confusion, misunderstanding? I, I don't understand this. I don't know why this is this way. Do you ever struggle with those things? On the other hand, do you ever desire these things? Do you want unity and oneness? Brethren, I want it with every fiber of my being. I want it in my family. I want it in my marriage. I want it in this church. I want it among all people. That's what I want. Do you want openness and giving where people are willing to give to others where they're, where they're generous and where you're generous in the way you ought to be? Do you, do you desire courage where that you might confess Christ before others, that you might be an influence on others to be salt and light? And do you desire that kind of clarity and conviction where you know the right thing to say to others from the Word of God and you're willing to say it with boldness? Well, the solution is the same for us as it was for them. If we don't want the things in black and if we desire the things in red, may I suggest that it is the same process for us as it was for them. What should happen with us? Well, can we not be so greatly changed by Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, which allows ultimately for our own? Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And so too for us, if you turn to Romans chapter 6, isn't that what's supposed to happen with us as well? In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You can be forgiven. 
If you die to the old man of sin, if you are buried in the watery grave of baptism, you can rise to walk again in newness of life. That has to happen if you desire this kind of same change in you that happened in the disciples. Hasn't Jesus appeared to us through what we read to drive out doubt, to restore us when we fall, to open our understanding and to equip us to teach others also. And maybe we say, well, it's not the same as what they saw, and that's true. We sang that song, I've seen him walk down a dusty road. I haven't seen that with my eyes. Well, I haven't physically seen that with my eyes, but I've seen it in the things that are revealed. I have seen Jesus. And you know what one of Jesus' main points was when he appeared to his disciples, when he appeared to many after his resurrection, one of his main primary points was, you should have already seen me. You should have seen me in all of the things that were written about me in the Old Testament, that I am the fulfillment of all of these things. If you turn over to Luke chapter 22, one more time, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Excuse me, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. Keep going, keep going, a couple pages. As he appears to these on the road to Emmaus, remember? But they didn't know it was Jesus at first, they just thought it was some guy. And in verse 25 he starts teaching and he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says, I want you to see this from the Old Testament. You can see Jesus. And finally, he reveals himself to them, and they knew him, but then he vanishes from their sight. And in verse 32, they say to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? Later, he appears to them all in verse 44, and, and really Luke's gospel is coming to a conclusion. And he says to them in verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you when I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now, I think a lot of times we expect that to be some miraculous things that he pulled the curtain back, but in the context of everything that's happened in Luke chapter 24, you know what I think he did? He spent these 40 days teaching them so that they might understand. Jesus has appeared to you and me through what we read, so that doubt might be driven out and so that we might understand. And we have figuratively already ascended to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you are in Christ, this describes you. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's that resurrection we talked about, right? 
But then notice verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are enthroned with Him in the heavenly places. This is every Christian's reality. Our citizenship is in heaven. And if we can see that and know that, then, then all of those negative things that plague our lives as it plagues the disciples' life, those things will be reduced to a great degree because our citizenship is in heaven. But it is also every Christian's hope too, isn't it? That we will ascend, that we will meet the Lord in the clouds as he tells the church in Thessalonica, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Because Jesus ascended, we're going to ascend too. And hasn't the Holy Spirit guided us to truth as the apostles wrote those things down just as the day of Pentecost that truth was revealed? We too know clearly if we are willing to seek it and find it in the Word. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me as an apostle the the mystery as I have briefly written already by which when you All you other Christians, including this church in Ephesus, when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to His holy apostles and prophets. Go through the same things and we will receive the same results as His apostles. And the book of Acts recounts how this change is made by people over and over and over and over again. Broken and confused people who are saved. Many who, like us, had never met or seen or heard Jesus in the physical flesh. And yet they are saved by His blood. Saved by these things that happened over these 50 days. But the first of all of those are found back there in Acts chapter 2. This last verse and the lesson will be yours to do with as you wish. After Peter confesses Jesus to them, in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You know what we are? We're afar off. We're 2,000 years away. We're thousands and thousands, half a, half a world away from the physical place. And yet, we can be saved in just the same way. We can be the first fruits. The first fruits in our lives can be this salvation. Pentecost, 50 days from the Passover to the Sabbath. It's unclear exactly what all Pentecost commemorated, but we know for sure it celebrated the offering of first fruits. And this day of Pentecost saw the first fruits of the harvest of Christ and his church. And what they did must be the first fruits of your spiritual life. This is what you must do to obey the gospel. And what better day to do it on than on that day of Pentecost? 
Won't you do so now? Like them, won't you respond right away? What better day could there be than today to be permanently and irrevocably changed by what God has done for you? The 50 most important days? Yeah, maybe in the history of the world. But today could be the most important day of your life. If you come now, while together we stand and while we sing. I must needs go by the